So welcome back, everyone. If it works to have your video on, uh, that would be great. It's nice to be able to see people as I'm uh, speaking. So again, I'll I'll talk for somewhere around uh, probably 40 minutes or so, 40, 45, and then then we have a nice uh, nice good period of uh, talking together. Typically, for the last uh, 20 plus years, um, I take a one month retreat, personal retreat in the spring, very often from the end of February to the end of March, which is what I did this year, four weeks. Um, I was at Spirit Rock, um, which was very nice, had a lot of storms, <laughs> very powerful. And I, I like very much to talk on Wednesday, just a little bit after coming back from the retreat. So I came back, today is Wednesday, I came back from the retreat late afternoon Saturday. So I've been back about four days, and I can still very much feel the energy and influence of the retreat, and I've uh, not scheduled too much this week. So that can really um, keep it going. Although I do have a, uh, I've noticed a to-do list that developed that is, uh, let's just say, more than one page long. <laughs> so many of you know that one if you've been on retreat. So I wanted to, yeah, so I wanted to uh, share. And it was four weeks uh, I, I actually was mostly just uh, practicing meditation in my own room. I didn't go in the hall hardly at all. Uh, so I would be in my own room for a few hours before a meal. I would uh, uh, often go out and walk some outside when it wasn't storming too much. And I, would, I did go to all the meals. I, I did definitely made sure of that. And... Uh, and I actually, one practice I love to do, which as I did three times a day, I love to, I do metta in the dining hall. Sometimes I would do it for, just go one individual at a time. I'd open my eyes, choose an individual, close my eyes, keep chewing, and do loving kindness practice for that person. Uh, you could try it sometime if you're ever eating alone in a restaurant or a cafe. It's very nice. Very nice. And sometimes I would just set up a field of metta, like radiating metta, which I, I've taught here some, where we have uh, kind of the, the heart radiating out kindness and going in all directions. Uh, so that was very nice, three times a day. And I tend to eat slowly. I come from a family lineage of slow eaters, particularly my father is very well known for that. And so I would eat slowly and typically, so I'd be doing metta 45 minutes, three times a day. Very, very nice. And then would, uh, then would be uh, in my room. Uh, I, I brought rain pants, so I did go out into the storms that we had. Uh, you know, I had good uh, rain gear, which I really liked being out in the storms during the rain, which was very, uh, very, very nice. And... Um, 
Today I want to talk about one of the themes that came up in the retreat, but I thought I'd mention a few of the themes that uh, came up. Um, one of them is that I just uh, very much uh, love retreats. It's really, you know, in many ways, uh, you know, it can be hard work and a lot of discoveries initially. At a certain point, it's the it's the exploration of the nature of awareness and even we might say of the mystery of life that this is what can occur like just being present with um, the nature of awareness and the nature of uh, being alive and mysterious aspects one theme which I explored I, I did also did uh, body practices really exploring what we might call the subtle energies of the body. I did those about two hours a day. And so that was a theme and it, it tends to, um, for me, open up awareness so that their awareness is both inside and outside or like radiating the subtle energy of both my body and of, of, uh, of the universe and experiencing that with, without that much division between inner and outer. So that was, that was a theme. Um, keeping uh, continuity moment by moment of awareness, including in the informal times, including uh, walking, going between things, doing my 45 minutes or so of uh, what we call work meditation every day, which for me was uh, cleaning two bathrooms, which which I very much like. <laughs> so, um, uh, so keeping continuity of awareness so that it's not, you know, it's very easy in our daily practice. Okay, now I'm aware. Okay, meditation over. Back to habitual mind. How many how many people know that one? Right? It's very, very common. So one of the things one can do on a retreat is really train to have more continuity. You can do that on, in a day and you can do it if you're just at home for a few hours. It's really more the intention that's important. But, but as we deepen in practice, continuity becomes a very, very important theme and, and, and way of practicing to keep keep, you know, and it's not so much trying to do it all at once, but it's just taking the next step. Okay, I'm aware, some in the meditation, what's an activity where it's easy for me to be aware, right? And so we might say, okay, it's easy for me to be aware, or easier, I should say, when I take a walk on my own, you know, and I can be aware maybe of my body or of my feet touching the um, the ground or the pavement. So continuity was an important theme and having, you know, a very, very full awareness. And the theme I wanted to explore for the rest of today is, or actually I'll mention one other theme before going to that. Um, a theme which I focused on, especially a little bit at the end of the retreat, I took some time to reflect, you know, for Many of us uh, being on retreat really brings up the question, you know, how am I spending my time, right? How am I, am I doing what's, um, 
most important for me. And there's an interesting, I, I talked with a friend and he said he had heard, he had a, a mentor, he's a psychiatrist, and he said he had a mentor who said that the most important question is not what's a good use of my time, but what's the best use of my time, making the distinction between that. And so for me, it's a very natural question that comes up, you know, because I find myself um, often um, quite busy. Anyone else find that at times? Anyone else busy? It's, it's in the culture. I talk with people, you know, I remember, you know, talking to people in the Wednesday group who have retired and they say, I didn't realize one could be so busy being retired. <laughs> And it's, uh, it's interesting because it's, it's sort of like there is so much stimuli, so many stimuli out there. And so, you know, I felt myself just uh, the ease and the relief of having four weeks without needing to respond to emails and without having the to-do list, right? And just the ease of that. We experience that maybe if we take vacations as well or retreats, but it really raises the question of um, what shifts do I want to make? What do I, what do I let go of? You know, to have more openness and what's most important for me? You know, and, you know, the, you know, for me, what came as most important were a few areas. One is practice, you know, and retreats especially. Another are close relationships. Another is writing. And then particularly, then also I should say last area I would call teaching and particularly what I can uniquely offer. You know, that some of the areas I teach other people can do, but there's some areas that I've uniquely developed or that I can uniquely offer. So that's an ongoing question like, uh, what shifts call, you know, and it's something that we all do at, at times, you know, but it really helps to have the, this amount of uh, so-called downtime to do that. And then the theme that I thought I would explore, we, we could explore that theme maybe another time, you know, like, uh, how do I, how do I uh, make choices about uh, what's important, you know, and and so forth. But the theme I wanted to talk about today came out of something which was also significant at the, at the retreat. It's like, how do I hold the fact that sometimes I'm quite awake and aware, and sometimes there's habitual energy. You know, there are habits. You know, we all experience some version of this. And how do I have both uh, perspective about this and patience, and how do I, how do I uh, have what we might call skillful effort? You know, so I want to explore that theme in different ways and really look, look at the, the notion, really of how. You know, especially as we practice, we're a mix of being awake and being asleep, of being awake and having 
some habitual energy still still happening. You know, for some of us, actually starting meditation brings to mind the habitual tendencies which we didn't even realize were there, right? And so it can be a lot, you know, at, at first. You know, I, I know when I, I've told this story from time to time, but when I was first meditating, I noticed that I was planning an awful lot. And if you had asked me before I started meditating, do you plan a lot? I would have probably said, you know, normal amount. But then when I meditated, I noticed I was planning all the time. And I've, I've mentioned how I, I come from a family of planners. My sister has a master's degree in planning. <laughs> and um, actually urban planning and city planning. And she's, uh, she's had her livelihood in her life from being uh, actually a health planner with Kaiser. Right. So it's, it's, it's valuable. But I would notice myself planning all the time. And I only really noticed that when I started meditating. I didn't really notice how much I planned. I was a student at the time, and I would notice myself rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing like a report I had to give, you know, like uh, in a given meditation over and over again. And so that was a learning. And so I'll, I'll explore this topic, recognizing that we, we all are at different levels of our practice. And we even have different intentions right now. For some of us, it's to find a little more peace and calm. For some of us, it's to, you know, work skillfully with difficult or, you know, what we might call negative states. For others, it's to really open up to more and more mindfulness or more awareness. For some of us, we may frame it in terms of awakening. You know, in the Buddha, gave different kinds of practices, but for him, the overall aim is awakening, to be awake. And the contrast is with not being asleep. It's, it's interesting that right now, there actually, what, are, I think there's a law in Florida against being woke, right? I forget the, how the law is, but it has the abbreviation W-O-K-E, which is interesting, you know, like it's against being woke, which mean, which implies let's stay asleep, <laughs> if you think about it. And, uh, you know, it's also interesting because uh, the original term woke came out of uh, kind of African-American popular culture is particularly there in some of the music coming out of the 1930s. I know there's a Lead Belly song which has, you know, the about the need to be uh, woke, which basically means, uh, you know, be aware of racism, right? That's what the original meaning of woke was. Be aware of the dynamics that are happening so you can navigate them, you know. And it was in, it was in the music and, and, and so forth. And it's interesting now that for some, particularly politicians, uh, being uh, woke or awake is a problem. Uh, interesting, right? Anyway, I won't, I won't say more of that, about that right now, but that could be, uh, could be a theme. And so it's interesting, though, to reflect on the fact that um, the, you know, the teaching is really that our basic nature is awake, right? That's what the teaching is. Our basic nature is awake 
Our basic nature is to manifest love and wisdom. So it's a natural question, why isn't that happening more? <laughs> right? If that's our basic nature, why are things as they are? Right? Why don't we manifest awakening? Why don't we live without confusion? And I think it's been a puzzle for all religious or spiritual traditions. You know, if our nature is to be awake, why aren't we awake? If our nature in the uh, you know, Jewish, Christian, and Islamic traditions is to be made in the image of God, how do we explain human reality? <laughs> right? How are things... How are things as they are? You know, I know um, I was a graduate student in philosophy, and one of the issues that I read about was what's called in theology and philosophy the problem of evil. You know, and usually defining evil as the fact that certain human beings deliberately cause harm and pain for others, particularly uh, innocent others. You know, how, how is there evil and violence and so forth, history of wars, if we have an omnipotent God who is um, benevolent and all-powerful, all-good? How do you have those two together, right? Anyone wondered about that? maybe when you were younger, right? And um, when I studied that, I was unsatisfied by the answers. <laughs> they did not seem to inform me very much. You know, there were all sorts of intellectual gyrations, but I don't even remember where people went with it right now, if you asked, if you would ask me. And it's an interesting question, you know, or it could be, you know, in Jewish tradition, it could be, how do you have an all-powerful and all-good God who permits the Holocaust? Right? How do those go together? Right? You know, and um, I found a passage from a Jewish philosopher named um, Emil Fackenheim. He said, from the point of view of Jewish religious existence, as from many other points of view, the Holocaust is the most shattering of, ma of major recent changes. After the events associated with the name of Auschwitz, everything is shaken, nothing is safe, right? How do, the, how do those go together? You know, or in Buddhist tradition, you have seemingly in the teachings of the Buddha, this dichotomy between what's called nirvana and samsara. You have uh, uh, the aim of awakening is to touch nirvana and eventually one leaves in the original teaching the whole cycle of birth and death which is driven by greed, hatred, and delusion and it's called by the name of samsara S-A-M-S-A R-A. And I, I recently uh, googled samsara 
to get a little more information. And there's actually a, a major company called Samsara. <laughs> kind of funny. You know, I don't know if they fully know what it means, uh, but it, uh, Samsara is the, you know, the whole, uh, what, um, You know, it's our reality driven by greed, hatred, and delusion. It's the cycles of dukkha, the cycles of what's usually translated as suffering. You know, and so in the way originally presented by the Buddha, they seem, seem quite different. Or we can think of, you know, how do you explain the fact that we're not living in paradise? And you have, what, the uh, story of Adam and Eve, right? In the, in the Hebrew Bible, it's basically that... Uh, you know, God created paradise for uh, Adam and Eve. And, you know, in one version, what? Eve was convinced by a serpent to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And that was a no-no because that brought, that would bring human beings to a God-like level. And so God says, you know, you know, you did bad, no way. You're you're out of here. <laughs> so he he uh, he. I don't know if he got upset, but he he uh, he he took them out of paradise, and they uh, you know and later you know worse things happened. There were murders and violence, and God said, "I don't know about this human existence." And he said, "I think I'll drown everyone." <laughs> right, and so he had the flood. Right, and. He said, "Okay, there. I'm. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna try again, and we're gonna try with uh, Noah and his family because they're they're good, right? And everyone else is gone, <laughs> except for what can fit on Noah's ark, right? And so, anyway, there's a there are sort of explanations of why we are the way we are. And I remember the the Buddha said, don't try to look for the origins of why things are as they are, or you'll go mad.' Anyway, so." So you have this interesting way that it's hard to know why, you know, why do we have both this potential of awakening um, and the fact that we have all these habitual tendencies and, even, you know, and then we look outward for people who aren't meditative practitioners and we look out at all that's happening in the world and all the the, the pain and the, the violence that's going on, you know, even intensifying uh, at our time. Um, and so how to, how to hold that? You know, and what I'll, what I'll come to are a few ways of practicing with that. And it's even, you know, it's even on a, you know, on a very personal level, how do I hold both the intention of my practice to awaken with my own habits. How do I hold that skillfully so I don't get overly discouraged by my own habitual tendencies or my own, the own, my own ways that I get stuck? Does anyone sometimes get discouraged just by times that you feel stuck? Yeah, it's, it's almost, almost universal in terms of raising hands, right? That we, we, we can see that. So, I want to explore that territory further. Um, you know, we can we can see actually one way to look at it is that we don't awaken without 
there being challenges. And in fact, one way to look at it is, is that our, our stuck places and our habits are opportunities for learning. Not easy to see that. I know when I first was meditating, uh, I just wanted to go to my mind being quiet and easeful. And when they said, you know, you can work with the difficulties, I thought, oh, that's for other people. I'll just go to the ease and bliss, right? That's what I'll do. Because I, w I was somewhat influenced by having had uh, psychedelics before I started meditating. And I said, I'll just, I'll just duplicate those experiences. That sounds good, right? Uh, and that, you know, that, that didn't work, I should say. <laughs> uh, but, um, but it took a while for me to really appreciate that I could learn from the difficulties, you know, and because we have such a longing, don't we, for, for ease and for quiet and for the mind being blissful, right? There's such a longing for that, and that is something we touch at times. And yet the perspective is how can I, or that we want to develop is how can I take this challenge or this difficulty as part of practice and what's a skillful way to take this challenge right now as a difficulty that's what i found myself doing over and over again again a retreat or meditating we're more likely to do that if we can as soon as possible say how can i take this challenge this habitual tendency this way I'm stuck as an opportunity for practice. Uh, things deepen. You know, things, things can really uh, deepen. You know, one person, uh, I, I remember on Wednesday, he, he said, he framed it this way in, from our Wednesday gathering, and I won't say the full English word, uh, but it's, it's saying, oh, another effing, growth opportunity. <laughs> and I don't know, those of you who are not native English speakers, uh, I don't know if I can do translations, but uh, it's uh, in English, the main word is a four letter word, which uh, could be an acceptable English word would be fornication. <laughs> okay, I hope that says enough. Okay, for non-English speakers. Uh, any case, um, how do we how do we do that? And I'll, I'll come you know I'll come back to and give some some guidelines. Uh, there's a Tibetan beautiful Tibetan phrase from the Lojong teachings which says, "Turn all obstacles into the path of practice." So somehow we have to hold the perspective of awakening at the same time that we work with difficulties. Turn all obstacles into the path of practice. And we can, in that way, see life as a training ground. Life is like a school. It's a school to awaken. That's one way to say it. And so it becomes very valuable, and this is really the theme of my, my talk, to be able to hold the perspective of awakening at the same time, at times, that we work with challenges and difficulties. How do we do that? How do we hold both of those together? Another way of talking about it is that we maintain 
even with difficulties, confidence and faith in our practice, in our deep nature. You know, doesn't mean we don't lose it for a while. But the que- it's, it's a question, how do I develop and maintain confidence and, pati- and patience when, I'm, uh, when I get a little bit stuck or when I notice habitual tendencies, you know? And, or, you know, I was noticing um, coming home after the retreat and keeping this perspective of awakening, but also noticing that there's a lot to take care of you know, I actually have not fully unpacked from the retreat yet. You know, there are things that are incomplete and that, for you know, maybe like for you, for me, I'd like to have things complete. <laughs> I'd like to be unpacked, right? And so there's a little bit of reactivity in my mind just noticing what's incomplete or what needs to be done or the growing to-do list or, or all of that. How can I have patience with all that and keep the perspective of awakening, right? I think even to ask the question goes a long way, because I think if we ask the question, we may have our own answer. What helps you with confidence or with patience? You know. So for me, it was just really staying with being present and noticing incompletion. You know, for me, it was the incompletion of things to do or things to unpack. It could be the way that I'm incomplete in terms of having this habit still there after all these years and so forth. There's an interesting way that... uh, we can really see this as an important way of practicing. And I I want to maybe for the rest of the time, talk about seven ways of practicing with this, with this theme, you know, uh, and some of them are very basic. Number one, just keep developing the tools of practice, mindfulness, concentration, the wisdom teachings, keep on doing that, keep on developing. And this really is just showing the commitment to awakening. And so that's, that's kind of an obvious one. Keep on practicing, keep on developing in all the areas of our practice, uh, developing ethics. You know, work especially with the core teaching about how we practice with and transform reactivity. You know, which, which I talk about a lot here on Wednesdays, how do we um, keep on identifying reactivity? Because all, all of what we're talking about in terms of habit energy or being impatient or whatever, these are all forms of reactivity. So keep on understanding the teachings about reactivity and keep on tracking all the moments. I'm grasping after something pleasant or pushing away something I don't like make a deep commitment to, to track this, you know? And this is not always easy, you know, particularly when I'm reactive towards something that clearly is not okay or wrong. Maybe someone did something unethical or I'm being reactive about injustice or whatever. The aim is still to be non-reactive, but 
responsive. So it's not about getting, you know, just leaving everything aside. We've, we've looked into that a lot. Number, uh, number three, keep developing the attitude that everything is practice. You may work, you know, put that slogan on your refrigerator, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Keep on working with that attitude. Remember it. You could set it as an intention at the beginning of the day. You know, that I will take everything as practice. Now, a qualification to that is a fourth guideline, which is that, and which is something I, I say a lot, which is that we have to assess whether a particular challenge or difficulty is workable. We, whether we really can practice with it. You know, so I give, I ask people with the, when something difficult comes up to give a, a ranking on the scale of one to 10, with 10 being the most difficult and sort of nine or 10 being kind of in the overwhelm area where it's too much. And so we can't really practice with things when we're overwhelmed or it's too much. So develop your scale and maybe we don't, we can't, when something is a nine or a 10, then what's appropriate is not to try to be mindful of it, but maybe it's, in, in a sense, it's still practice, but to do that which is skillful to bring ourselves back to balance. So it's still practice. So I kind of take that back, but we can't necessarily be mindful, you know, because it's too much. You know, something traumatic comes up or whatever. But we still can practice in the sense of, uh, responding skillfully to what's happening in the moment. Number five, especially be attentive to the narrative or storyline that's there with a particular difficulty or challenge or habit. You know, like, oh, this will always be here. Oh, this is not working or whatever. Watch the storyline. Really study it closely. Look out for it. Try not to repeat it. You know, that's, that's a huge area of practice, you know, to really look out for that. Uh, number six comes back to that notion of faith and confidence. See what helps you develop faith and confidence in the larger process of awakening. What helps you to have a sense, I am practicing and I am incomplete, or I have stuff happening. You know, remember that naming that a habitual tendency is happening is a fundamental way to practice. That's crucial, right? Just to say, you know, I'm caught in my habitual planning mode right now, that's mindfulness. We sometimes say mindfulness of a particular habit is not caught in the habit. Mindfulness of anger is not angry, right? Mindfulness of reactivity is not reactive. So see what helps you have patience and faith. It could be talking to yourself. It could be thinking of teachers or mentors or other people or people who inspire you or remembering a passage of a text or, um, Knowing what to do that sort of uh, is uplifting. Maybe it's taking a walk or 
being with beauty, right? doing, uh, bringing compassion, doing metta practice, and so forth. And then lastly, see if you can see the world in a similar way. You know, to see, because I, one way to look at the world is that we ha we're kind of a little bit in a race between awakening in the world and some of the negative tendencies just intensifying and intensifying. And, and we often lose sight that there are awakening energies in the world. You know? A lot of them we can see, I think, are particularly coming through the younger people, like think of uh, the climate activism, the sunrise movement, and so forth. You know, and so see also, see the world in terms of both awakening happening and then an intensifying of bad habits, we might say, you know, you know related to climate crisis and, you know, violence and war and so forth. So hold those together, that there is both awakening and also in some ways, uh, you know, continuation and even sometimes intensifying of greed, hatred, and delusion. So just to close, let me, uh, let me close with a few things. The first is from uh, Dr. A.T. Ariaratni, who was the founder of uh, Sarvodaya in Sri Lanka. And I, I met him and uh, did an interview with him. And they set up, I think, uh, I think it was basically local community groups in Sri Lanka that brought together Buddhist practice and addressing the needs of the community. It's the largest example in the world of bringing Buddhist practice into the social realm. And in fact, I think they had 15, they have 15,000 groups all over Sri Lanka. After the tsunami, you know, uh, some years ago in Sri Lanka, they had a more powerful response than the government, these groups. And I interviewed him once, and this is what he said related to what I'm talking about. He said, when I do something with good intentions and I quote-unquote fail, I do not take it as a failure. It may be a failure to others, but to me it is not a failure because that quote-unquote failure may have taught me equanimity. In learning to accept failure, in a sense I succeed. Every action that I carry out carries an internal reason which is always beneficial to me. Another way of saying that is when it's in the framework of practice, there's always benefit and learning, Not even if it doesn't look good outwardly or it doesn't look good to me. And then a similar sentiment, this is from a friend, a Vietnamese friend named Thich Minh Duc, who was in Vietnam uh, during the war and, and came as a very as a, a young monk. He left uh, Vietnam and, and has li you know, lived for a long time in the Bay Area. And I, I got to know him, um, got to know him pretty well. And this is what he said about the, uh, 
you know, about uh, being with the war. As Buddhists, he said, we thought we were planting seeds, you know, basically to counter the war. The best and only thing that we could do was to create favorable conditions for the seeds to become fruitful. We didn't know how long it would take. Sometimes if you plant a banana seed, it may take a certain number of months for the plant to produce bananas. But if you plant a coconut seed, it may take longer. <laughs> and so I'll, I'll tie in with that with something I heard from on this retreat from uh, Philip Moffat, who was one of the teachers. He said, when we're doing practice, our job is to plant the seeds. He said, the Dharma does the growing. I like that very much. We keep planting the seeds and then they grow, but not with our control. He said, we plant the seeds, the Dharma does the growing. So that may be helpful as well. So I think I'll stop with that. And let me invite just a few moments of, of quiet. And see what may have been helpful to you or resonant. And see if there are any uh, questions coming up or sharings. Question to clarify something more or, or whatever. See what's there for you. So if anyone wants to share anything or ask something, uh, really about anything that I explored, the, the larger theme, practice, share something, ask something. And you could do that by, if you have your video on, you can raise your hand, I can see you, or use the raise hand function. Or if you, if you want to be more anonymous, you could uh, send uh, through the chat to Carlita and uh, she could read something. So I see first Liz and then Stephen, yeah, and then and then Cherie, yeah. Hi, Liz. Um, is that list going to be available somewhere? Uh, I could make I, it. I, 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 I hate to give you another thing to do, but I would like to have that list. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll add it to my to-do list. Thank you so much, Please. Liz. And if I have any reactivity, uh, I know what to do. Uh, you, but you, you, you can you can tell me, and I will. Yeah. Answer. No, I have you know I have it in my notes, so it, it wouldn't take too long. I can put it on Dharma Seed. Okay. Along it's with the very, recording. It's a very powerful list, and I want to say two things about it. One, it's extraordinarily hopeful. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I'm in tears. Seriously. 
because you know how old I am. I've been working at this for 60 years. And uh, this is a developmental process. And um, that's okay. Now, that may discourage some people. But you don't, you don't work on one of these points and have it get fruition tomorrow. Right. This is a long, a long developmental process and one of, of devotion. Yeah. I, I, uh, I have just stumbled across the word devotion recently um, in describing my teachers. And I would apply it to myself also that this uh, 25-year practice path, so this is a path of devotion yeah. and development. Yeah, thank, thank you, Liz. Um, and thank you for bringing up the uh, sense of devotion, because that's a part of it. That goes along with the confidence and faith and can really, you know, we each have our different uh, supports, which really work for us. Uh, but uh, to have, for many of us, a devotional sense, so there can be, you know, uh, you know, I, I four times a day bring to mind some of the, the teachers and practitioners, many of whom are no longer alive, who inspire me, right? That can be, a, you know, um, I don't actually use the word devotion, but I could, right? And, that, and bringing to mind those who inspire me, alive or not alive, um, and other ways of really developing devotion and, and patience and really, yeah. And when I first was practicing, I thought it would be a quick process, uh, somewhat analogous to psychedelics. <laughs> that was, a that was off, uh, uh, that it would happen quickly. I'd get to enlightenment in a few years and then see what came next, right? That did not occur in that way. And so the patience and, and, uh, and also knowing one thing I didn't name, I could have, is have a sense of knowing where one's own edge is. You know, where is your own edge of learning? And that can be a focus, right? Okay, I'm really emphasizing, um, I don't know, regularity of practice. Or it could be I'm really emphasizing noticing reactivity. That, that can be another way, but... Yeah, that sense of devotion really crucial. Yeah. Thank you, Liz. It's a it's very it's a very hopeful path. Yeah, yeah, it's hopeful and it does develop. Right, it things happen. Yeah. Um, thanks, Liz. Uh, Stephen, please. And then looks like yeah, Victoria. Can you hear me? Yeah, you're fine. This is uh, very self-absorbing. Maybe just a little louder, so maybe a little closer to your, your microphone. Okay, this is uh, a bit self-absorbed and neurotic, but in the beginning I said I wanted to wish uh, my wife and myself uh, speedy recovery from COVID, and I'd rather delete that and just let it happen the way it is, because a lot of times when I do those things, they turn out the opposite. So I'm going to erase that. And it's totally neurotic, but it's okay. No, it's actually, Stephen, actually what you say I think is very significant because, and maybe there's a middle, middle ground or something where, you know, we might like to develop quickly and easily, uh, but then I can, I can wish that and still let things be as they are, right? 
Um, or maybe for you, it's more skillful just to say, I will let things be as they are and try to just be with it with uh, wisdom and compassion. That sounds like that's for you is probably uh, the wisest, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. thank you. I think what you're saying is useful for a lot of people. Thank you. Okay, then uh, Victoria, please. Hi, Donald. Hi. Welcome back. Thank you. Um, a couple things. Uh, first, I wanted to quote uh, Larry Rosenberg, who says, um, a bad situation is a good situation. <laughs> and um, and he says, every experience is a Dharma door which I really love. Those so that, nice. Yeah, thank you. That creates a kind of, um, and, and it really relates to what uh, you said about how life is a school. And I think um, for some reason, ever since I was little, I, I had that attitude. Of course, as I got older, I, I forgot it in my greed, hatred, and delusion. But, um, <laughs> but I think that's a really um, good attitude because then we take things with equanimity. Um, what, and we do learn more from suffering, or at least I have, um, I've learned much more than I have from good experiences. Um, the other thing, of course, would be a huge discourse, um, but I, and I know I'm sure everyone's familiar with the idea of the, you know, that the explanation, the traditional explanation for why evil exists is, um, is humanity having free will. And, um, and I, but I've, over the years, I've really pondered that a lot. And, um, and this, just the idea that it's, you know, even with the tragedies that are occurring in our country, um, the people who have power, the, the NRA or whatever it's called, um, you know, the people that have power, they have the free will to make choices, which can be very destructive and devastating. And, um, you know, the Holocaust, the same thing that, that, so that if everyone equally has free will, then inevitably there's going to be a lot of evil in the world and a lot of suffering because, those are the choices that some people are making who have more power than those of us who want, you know, a world of compassion and, and love and joy and equanimity and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot, lot there, Victoria. And thank you for quoting uh, Larry Rosenberg. He was uh, uh, a main mentor for me in my first years of practice. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. When I was living in the Boston area. Yeah, Larry was, you know, wonderful mentor to me, and yeah, I like I like those quotations. What was it? Uh, what can you say? Those two quotations again. Every experience is a dormidor was one of them. Uh, yeah, I, I actually wrote it down from his talk. So yeah, here's uh, a bad situation is a good situation. Yeah, and then the other one is every bad situation is a dormidor. Yeah, and good situations are too because we can grasp yeah. onto them. <laughs> Yeah. And then just to clarify what you were saying at the end about free will and ego, that, that's not traditional Buddhist teaching. That's more comes out of Western uh, religious traditions. Right. No, I'm, yeah. I'm aware of that. No, but yeah. just not, not, not so much to say to you, but just to say to other people. Oh, OK. Just, just to clarify. Yeah. 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 I just I just somehow had to say that. No, no, <laughs> so, it's, it's yeah. important because I, I also obviously was quoting and from Western religious traditions. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, I wanted to share it just because for, for me personally, it's given me a lot of equanimity of yeah. understanding why there's evil because it's so awful when horrible things happen like this recent yeah. tragedy. Yeah. So Thank you, thank Victoria. You. And then uh, Bowman and Cherie, please. 
Yeah, still muted, it looks like. Yeah, yeah Donald, um, I, I really love when you talk about, um, you know, reactivity. And, I mean, that's the main focus of my practice is, is trying to deal with this reactivity. And when you said the word responsive, I realized that I'm doing so much work on renouncing reactivity that there's not much practice on responsive. Yeah. And and trying to figure out, okay, there's reactivity going on. Then there's stress of wanting to react, not knowing how to react appropriately. So it just sometimes creates more stress. Yeah. So you kind of getting stuck in that in that pause. So is there like a grounding technique or something that you know I could insert there? Yeah, well it's it's um it's such a, a general characterization of our practice. And I'm using just to be clear, um, I'm using the words in a a particular sense. You know, in, in normal English we might sometimes say uh, that person reacted to the situation. That person responded to the situation, and they might that might be uh, they might be synonyms. That might mean the same thing. So here I'm using reactivity as that grasping and pushing away that's more compulsive and habitual. You know, as, as we've looked at a lot on Wednesdays, and then I'm using the word responsive to mean a way of being with the situation that doesn't involve reactivity. So I'm, you know, the ideal therefore for every situation is to be responsive. So I'm giving a particular definition to that, that and that, that's important because in normal English we might not distinguish between the two. That being said, one way to think about it is that we can think about both an inner response and sometimes there's also an outer response. I think there's always an inner response. So if I'm uh, noticing myself uh, beating myself up for something that happened yesterday, you know, I have a narrative, you shouldn't have done that, blah, 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 you know, and so forth, and I notice myself being reactive, part of my response might be just to be mindful. You know, might be just to, let me be aware of this, let me uh, be mindful of the reactivity. That's part of my response. So I have an inner response that uses my tools skillfully. I might bring in compassion practice and hold myself with some tenderness and some care. That would be part of a response, right? So there's an inner response uh, in which I bring in my practice tools, mindfulness, and maybe I remember the wisdom teachings. I remember the teachings about reactivity. Uh, I bring in heart qualities, to hold it with kindness, you know, or uh, it's, it would be, you know, if it was too much for me, you know, like in what I just taught about the, the 1 to 10 scale, part mm -hmm. of being responsive is noticing, oh, it's a 10. Let me, uh, you know, let me relax, take a walk, call up a friend and try to shift it away from this, right? That would, that's part of response. And then there's also, so all of our inner practice could be called response. And then there's also outer response, which is more involved, you know, okay. My, uh, my co-worker didn't keep an agreement. I got, became reactive. I can do inner work with that. 
how do I then respond skillfully outwardly in talking with my coworker, right? There's a whole set of things we could say about that, you know, in, involving skillful speech, involving, uh, you know, uh, knowing how to work with differences or conflicts, all sorts of things, right? And similarly, to, to bring it into, you know, more complex social situations. So, uh, so I think it's helpful generally to distinguish between inner and outer response. Inner response is always going to be part of it. And that might be all there is because some, you know, if I'm just working with my own reactivity, that might be enough. And then some situations there might be an outer response. If you had reactivity and, you know, said something mean to uh, the person to your right, <laughs> uh, you might want to, you know, you might want to talk later and say something, whatever, apologize, whatever. So that would be part of a response also. So making that distinction, always do having the inner response and then sometimes an outer response is, is a way of holding it. Yeah. Thank you. That's very helpful. I appreciate yeah. it. Thanks, Shree. Um, and last one, uh, Virginia, please. Hi. Hi, thank you. Um, first of all, I just wanted to share an acronym that I learned in um, mental health counseling graduate school, which okay. is FOG, F-O-G, wow. which stands for Effing Opportunity for Growth. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, okay, I really appreciate this yeah. theme today because it really, it really is about the obstacles becoming opportunities for yeah. practice. Yeah. And I just wanted to share um, that what came to mind for me was um, the Tibetan tradition of, of Buddha families where there's the wrathful deities yeah. and the peaceful deities, and they're two sides of the same coin. And I think this is from the Tibetan Book of, Book of the Dead, but the practice is to go towards the wrathful deity, which represents habitual tendencies, reactivity, yeah. um, rather than running away yeah. and that that can lead to wisdom that can actually lead to uh, this transformation to, to wisdom. So it's just a beautiful kind of image for me of, of um, the, the fact that the, the neuroses and the wisdom are two sides of the same thing. And that practice is, taking you to that opportunity for transformation. Yeah, that's great, Virginia. Yeah, I actually, uh, I was actually thinking of bringing in some Tibetan material, but uh, I was, I think I'm going to reserve that maybe for, for next time. But with some of those themes that, you know, the, as we go even more deeply, the, uh, the awakening and the delusion are not fundamentally different. <laughs> And, and, you know, some of these teachings can really help us see that. So I think I will bring that in a little more next week. Maybe continue, continue with this theme some. And so, yeah, and then bringing in the wrathful deities and having the sense that, uh, uh, you know, I mean, that, that model is useful in a number of different ways, you know, such as not, not being overly nicey-nice, but knowing that sometimes there is what we might call fierce compassion. Right. 
something like that. And, and I love also that you were taught that fog model in graduate school. That's uh, very much like, uh, you know, maybe the person I, I remember because it was brought up on a Wednesday, maybe five years ago, someone, you know, has had another effing growth opportunity. And it's the same, maybe he learned it in graduate school, but you know, it's, it's out there. Yeah, it's, uh, but fog, I'll, I'll remember that. I hadn't heard that before. That's great. Great, so, great, so. Thank you, so I think what I, what I can do following Liz's suggestion, I will try to, uh, within the next, uh, hopefully next few hours, I will put up those seven guidelines on the Dharma Seed website as I post the recording for the talk. And so it'll be up there and you can access it. It, it, it just will be public, uh, D-H-A-R-M-A-S-E-E-D.com and just go to talks and you should see it. You can also go to teachers and look for my name. You should find it easily. So I, should have that up, you know, maybe by late afternoon. That's my intention. And then you could work with those if you wish. And how many would like to work with this theme in the next week and come back and explore? Great. So let's let's do that. And I'll we'll have some time also for people to share uh, what you found in your, you know, during the week, right? How do you work with that? You know, a way to work with that in practice would be Remember it, set your intention, maybe each morning, maybe twice a day, so that we remember it's very easy in daily life to forget our intentions, right? So let me invite right now a period, just a, a minute or two of quiet, and set your intentions for the next week. What will help you, if you'd like to work with this theme, what will help you to remember And then we'll come back for our closing, our dedication of merit, as we, which really reminds us that we practice not just for ourselves, but also for others. And may uh, the benefits of today be offered to everyone, all beings, knowing that that includes us. So thank you very kindly for your attention uh, uh, to be continued and I'll do my thank you everyone till next you. time and feel free if you want to unmute and yes. uh, before you go just say hi and goodbye and so forth. Thanks Donald it was really great to see you and uh, thank you so much for this talk. Thank yeah you, very everybody. welcome thank you. Goodbye and goodbye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye -bye. Thank you, Donald. Thank you, Carlita. Yay, Carlita. Thank you, Carlita. Thank you so much. Thanks, Have everyone. a great week. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.